Let's see what the Lord has for us today. Um, just a commercial as we get started. You know, you know they have now on if you if you get rid of your cable and you're trying to be what do they call them uh, cord cutters, and so you join Netflix and you join Hulu and some of those things. Then they they tell you if you'll pay five dollars a month, you don't have to see commercials. Okay, and so. Um, I don't have that plan. Uh, you have to put up with one commercial, okay, as we get started. So I brought some brochures on the work that we're doing um, in North Africa that are out there, the Streams of Living Water Ministry. Uh, some of you got one of those last time. You're welcome to pick that up. Um, I also brought three uh, of the books that I've written, um, time management book um, that's designed to give us a biblical worldview on time. And then uh, I've done consulting work with about 850 churches now in about 15 different countries. So this is a little book that outlines a consulting process for helping a church to work through some things and become healthy. So uh, these are $5 each. And then I taught a course in seminary for 20 years called Biblical Foundations of Leadership. And um, I wrote the textbook for that class. And so um, that's what this, this is everything I know about leadership, or everything I knew uh, in 19, or 2016. We published it in 2016. I hope I've learned a few things since 2016 on leadership that are not here. But um, anyway, 20 years worth of uh, coaching and consulting. This is leadership. This one's uh, $10. Now, they're out there on the table. There's an envelope, but I also want to tell you, if you didn't come prepared and you want a book and you don't have the money for whatever reason, uh, I know we just had the end of the month and the beginning of a month and sometimes finances are really an issue, just, just take a book. Uh, if you want one to read, just take it and um, uh, let me bless you that way. We're going to, in a sense, jump off. Uh, how many of you were here about three weeks ago or so when I preached? Uh, let me just, if you would, raise your hands. Okay, all right, so a little over half. All right, um, so I want to sort of review in about two minutes or so what we talked about last time and then jump into a little further development of it from uh, the words of Jesus. And um, I'm, I'm going to do a couple of things different with you this morning. Um, I'm going to actually try to put a couple of tools in your toolbox of your Christian life. I think every Christian should be carrying a toolbox around with them. I was talking to somebody this morning uh, does uh, antique cars and classic cars, which is a real passion of mine in my background. And so uh, I uh, uh, always think about, you know, with my dad and working on cars, we always had toolboxes. As a matter of fact, we had two or three of these big rolling toolboxes like you see that mechanics have, and actually we, at one point we had five garages at my mom and dad's house. I mean, that's how serious my dad took his, uh, his automobile work. And um, so it was a hard time selling that house uh, a year ago. We had to find somebody that wants five garages. And, uh, and uh, so anyway, but we, we did find somebody that wanted five garages, so that was good. But anyway, uh, I always think of toolboxes. And in our Christian life, we need some toolboxes. And it's my belief that the leadership in a church should be helping people to add things to that toolbox. 
Because you're only here for an hour or two on Sunday, and then you might be in a small group or something during the week. But most of your life, you're out there living your Christian life sort of on your own or just with your family or with a couple of other Christian friends. And so we need that toolbox to carry around with us because we can't say, uh, you know, why don't you come with me Sunday to church and we'll try to get an answer for that. So before you leave today, and you'll hear me a couple times in the message, talk about here's some tools for your toolbox. I want to try to make this very practical, uh, something we can start using tomorrow uh, in our daily life. So let's sort of warm up a little bit and get started. Last time, I taught the whole book of 1 Corinthians in one sermon. And uh, it was a lot of fun. We just sort of ran through the book and got the big picture of the book. And the big picture of 1 Corinthians is that churches have problems. Churches have questions. Now, I know that's a shock for some of us to believe because we've just never known a church to ever have any kind of problems. But, you know, it encourages me that God so openly put churches in the Bible and was so open about their questions and struggles and problems. And we made the point that the Apostle Paul, who had started this church, kept a great attitude that he's got, to, he's got to say some very strong things to them. He's got to be the parent correcting the rebellious child on some issues. So he has to come with truth and really expose what they're struggling with that's wrong, that's, that's lies, that's destructive kind of stuff to the church. So he has to be very a firm parent. And yet, several times in the book, he calls them my brothers and sisters. He calls them my children. He calls them my friends, my dear friends. And so he maintains a relationship with them where he's not just beating up on them. He really deeply loves them, and he loves them enough to tell them the truth. Now, he wades into some stuff that's just its very challenging material in a way. He talks about sexual issues, sexual sins, and struggles, which in Corinth, which was a very pagan city, that was a big issue. He talks about money, and they're arguing and having conflicts with each other over money. Again, a very powerful thing. You can always tell somebody's values and priorities by looking at their, how they spend their money. Our money says more to us about our priorities than almost anything else. And what we really value, what's very, very important to us, it shows up in where we put our money. The other place where it really shows up is what we do with our time, how we put our time. So you look at your calendar, and it also shows your priorities. And the Corinthians had some real problems with that. They were spending more time divided and arguing and, and asking really not important questions and debating those instead of staying focused on the simple truth of what the Christian life should be focused on. And so Paul has to do a lot of correction in a lot of different areas. Now when we talked through that a few weeks ago, we also said that Paul in chapter 3 if you see a tree and it's got apples hanging on it, <clears throat> like where I grew up in, in the mountains, you'd say, oh, it's an apple tree. Why? The fruit. Yes. But that's like the Corinthians, like looking at all their problems. They've got problems over money, problems over sex, problems over the spiritual gifts, problems over this and being divisive and competitive. 
And that's the fruit hanging on their tree as a church, not very attractive. But Paul says you've got to go back to the root problem. Whatever's on the fruit is growing up out of the roots. And he says your root problem is not that you've got these questions and these challenges. All churches have those. The problem is is that you have a, a spiritual root that even though you've been Christians for over four years, Paul says... You're still spiritual babies, and you're immature. And so the root problem in the church at Corinth that was making all these other painful problems and messes was immaturity. He calls them spiritual babies, and that they should not be that way after four years of being Christians. And so he begins to give them an answer as to what it looks like, and that's our goal for today, to just focus on a couple of simple ideas of how do I grow to maturity? How does God get deeply into my life and change the character and the fruit that's coming out of my life? How does He go into the roots of my life and begin to mature me and grow me? Now, if you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that's one that we all tend to know a lot of times if you've been around church for just a little while because it's called the love chapter. So if you want to turn over there for a moment, and at the very last verse, verse um, 13, so it's chapter 13, verse 13, Paul says there's three things that will last forever. And you can fill this in on your sheet, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is what? Love. Love. You can fill it in the blank. Greatest of these is love. Now, just above that, he really defines and spells out what, what, I'm going to call it in this sermon, what Jesus' love is. You see, Paul is saying the main way you tell a difference between a spiritual baby and a spiritual adult is, do they have Jesus' love? Do they have Jesus' kind of love? And so... Let's look at how he defines Jesus' kind of love. He uses 15, and if you want to write these down, they're in verses um, starting in verse 4, 4 through 7. I'm struggling here. i got this new Bible that you journal in and stuff. It's got real nice margins and stuff. It's a brand new one. Um, And uh, I like it for everything except the print's too small. And uh, I've got these new bifocals, and I do this, and everything just gets fuzzy. And I'm like, where's that verse number thing? Somewhere in here there's a verse number. So, okay, so if you see me struggling a little bit, next time I'm going to bring 16-point type or something. Um, But uh, love is patient. So here's 15 characteristics of mature Jesus love. It's patient. Well, I'm I'm just glad I'm never impatient. No, no, no. It's kind. Huh. You know, several friends of mine, those Facebook friends, I've unfriended them because the last two or three years is just getting too unkind. And it's just like, I just don't have time for all this stuff, and it's just too... It's just we don't, stuff we don't need to approach it that way. 
It's just, it's not productive, it's not helping anybody. But our whole culture is becoming absent of kindness. And that's Jesus' love. Now the interesting thing about this is, if you, if you go somewhere to shop for a jewelry, have you ever noticed how they take a black cloth and they lay the jewelry out on the black cloth or some kind of dark cloth? And it just really pops out, you know? They also will use special lighting sometimes in the jewelry cases and stuff that make it sparkle and look different. Yeah. Well, that's the way it is in our world today. The more that mature Jesus love people exist and move in the world, they really stand out. Because there's a darkness in our world today that goes against Jesus love. So it's patient, it's kind. It's not jealous. He says several things that Jesus' love is not. It's not jealous. It's not boastful. It's not proud. It's not rude. It's not demanding its own way. Ooh, how many times do I get into an argument? Or we don't really call it an argument but sort of a debate kind of a thing, a, a heated discussion about whose way is going to win. Not irritable. <clears throat> it's just my family. It's just the way I am in the mornings. They ought to know that by now. No, Jesus' love is not irritable. Here's a big one. Jesus' love keeps no record of being wronged. <coughs> How many times has the Holy Spirit convicted me I'm keeping a scorecard? I'm keeping a scorecard. But Jesus' love doesn't do that. Because the minute Jesus' love forgives, then Jesus' love erases it, I can't erase it out of my mind. I might still think about it some, but I can choose to not use it as a scorecard against that person. I can't make myself forget, but I can choose not to use it as a debt to hang over somebody's head. Jesus' love is never supporting injustice, but rejoicing when truth wins. It never gives up. It never loses faith. Jesus' love is constantly hopeful. And Jesus' love endures every circumstance. Did you write those down on your notes there? Fifteen different characteristics of Jesus' love. That's, that's your measuring stick for your spiritual maturity, Paul says. I can tell in a quick glance by walking around with you for a couple of days, I can tell your spiritual maturity because I look for the presence of Jesus' love. And if that's coming up from the inside out, you can't fake it. But if it's not there, are we still spiritual babies? No matter how many years we've gone to church or how many times we've read the Bible through, we may have a lot of biblical knowledge stuffed between our ears, but it's not showing up in Jesus' love. 
Now, the next question is not only what is Jesus' love, but who gets it? Who, who gets to be the recipient of Jesus' love? Can anybody take a guess? If I'm mature and God is growing Jesus' love in me, who am I supposed to give it to? Who gets my Jesus' love? Who? <laughs> God gives it to me, and then who do I give it to? Everyone? Are you sure? Are you sure? I mean, you really want to you want to put that on your on your scorecard? Uh-huh. Okay, we turn to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. And let's look at the words of Jesus. Luke chapter 6. Who is supposed to get our Jesus love? And so in Luke chapter 6, starting with verse 27, as fuzzy as it is, I think that's right. Verse 27 of Luke chapter 6. Jesus says, I'll tell you who's supposed to get Jesus' love from you. And this is going to make you stand out in your culture. This is going to make you stand out in your culture. And so what is it? Verse 27. If you're willing to listen, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Well, that's, just, that's exactly the tone I hear on Facebook all the time. <laughs> Bless those who curse you. Yeah, that's... that's so many posts this week, I just couldn't get over the blessings that were being poured out. Pray for those who hurt you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, offer him the other cheek. If someone demands your coat, offer your shirt also. Give to anyone who asks. And when things are taken away from you, don't try to get them back. That just sounds un-American. I mean, we have individual rights in America. I was reading a biography uh, in the fall, um, The Life of Oswald Chambers. If any of you have ever read any of Oswald Chambers, you really need to read this biography. It's great. One of the things that Oswald Chambers died when he was in Egypt when he was 43 years old. He had his wife and a four-year-old daughter when he died. He was working there among the British troops in World War I. But one of the things that was one of his proverbs that he and his wife lived by was that anyone who asks us for something, if there's any way at all, we're going to just give it. We don't ask more questions. We don't try to figure it all out. If they ask, we give. And it was based on this verse. And he said, God will provide and God will show us. And Chambers and his wife lived that way. And when things are taken away from you, don't try to get them back. Do Listen, here's the big verse right here, verse 31. What's it say? Do to others as you would like them to do to you. And then Jesus offers a balance here. He says, if you love only those who love you, 
Why should you get credit for that? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good only to those who do good to you, why should you get credit? Even sinners do that much. And if you lend money only to those who can repay you, why should you get credit? Even sinners will lend to other sinners for a full return. In that paragraph, Jesus has painted the difference between Jesus' love and how our culture loves. And we should stand out and be so different. And then he says this, Love your enemies. Seems to me like he said that before, didn't he? Up in verse 27, love your enemies. Verse 35, love your enemies. When Jesus repeats himself, should we pay a little more attention maybe? I don't know. Do good to them. Lend to, and who's the them? Do good to your enemies. Lend to your enemies without expecting to be repaid. Then your reward from heaven will be very great and you'll truly be acting as the children of the Most High. In other words, when Jesus died for us on the cross, did He expect us to pay Him back for that? We can't. We couldn't begin to. And He says, when you use Jesus' love and pour it out freely, guess what? You start looking like children of God. And people look at you and say, man, there's something really different about you. For God is kind. Listen, God is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. You must be compassionate just as your father is compassionate. Twice in that, those couple of verses, he talks about us being God's children, God's kids. That where there's a family connection between us and God. Can you use your imagination with me for a minute? Everybody look up here. Eye contact. Okay, yeah, everybody's awake. Okay, good. All right, use your imagination. Everybody here, take your hands and do like this. You don't have to stand up because I don't want you to have to do that yet. We'll stand up in a little bit. But you hold in your hands like this. What you're holding right now are two suitcases. Okay? Everybody in here has two suitcases. Okay? Lift them up a little bit. See how heavy they are. Uh-huh. Some of you have been living for a while. You've been throwing a lot of stuff in your suitcase, Evelyn. It may take three people to roll that suitcase out to the car. Yeah, okay, Evelyn's got these big roller bags, okay, with four rollers on them, okay? Mine are just two really light carry-on bags kind of thing because I just hate to check bags when I travel. Okay, I'll wear the same pair of black blue jeans for two weeks when I'm overseas to keep from having to pack more clothes. Yeah, okay, so we've got our suitcases. One of your suitcases is your family suitcase, in other words, as you grew up in your family, they taught you how to handle anger. That when people are angry and verbally loud towards you, there's a certain way your family taught you to respond back. Some of you were taught to just 
get into the yelling match and make sure you win and get louder than the people who are attacking you. Some of you learned that you learned the safest thing to do was to duck and hide and then figure out a way to get some revenge quietly. The passive-aggressive child that grew into a passive-aggressive adult. And they sit in the staff meeting and go, sure, yeah, no problem, boss. And then they walk out. That stinking boss is giving me another job, you know, kind of thing. Where can I slough off? Where can I cut away? How much, you know, can I take out of this lunch money, you know, kind of thing that they've given me to take customers out to eat? And so some of us learn to handle anger in silent, sneaky ways. How'd your family learn to handle anger? How'd your family learn to handle disappointment? How did your family learn even to celebrate good times? You come in with all you know, decent grades, but you had one C. Your parent doesn't see anything on the grade card but the C, and they beat you for that one. Never said a word about the A's and B's. Didn't even acknowledge them. Just the C. That's all they could see was the failure. Some of that stuff gets packed into our family suitcases, and it shapes then how we love or don't love others. We've got another suitcase. We've all got a cultural suitcase. I can just tell you, Pandora and I have been spending some time overseas, and there's times we're embarrassed to be Americans. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of places around the world where they talk about the ugly American tourists and how we come in and we're so much want to be served and we've got all the answers to everything and we want to sort of throw our money around and, Oh, man, so it's sort of hard to show up and say, I'm just here to serve. You guys are the leaders. Tell us what to do. Because they're used to Americans showing up and saying, here's the strategy, here's the 25 plan. If you want me to give money to this, you've got to use my plans and my goals. Ugly Americans. That's a cultural suitcase. It's got some good stuff in it, but it's got some stuff that's not so good. And every cultural suitcase has been marked by sin, just like every family suitcase. Everybody's got them. Everybody's got them. Okay, now take your suitcases. You still got your suitcases? Take your suitcases and lay them down in front of you on the floor. See, Evelyn's listening. She's doing it. Come on, guys. Get your imagination going. All right. Now, there's zipper suitcases. So I want you to take your zipper and open each of your bags. Now, I don't want to see your dirty underwear. I don't want to see any of that. You don't want to see mine. I get it. But basically, what we're talking about is when we're talking about going from spiritual immaturity to spiritual maturity, when we're going from my, my best love that I can stir up with my family suitcase and my cultural suitcase, Jesus wants to change and make it Jesus' love. So here's what he wants you to do. And this is the whole point of this sermon. What Jesus wants you to do is to lay your family suitcase, your cultural suitcase, unzip them, open them up, and say, Jesus, go through my suitcase. Because you see, when I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior, and that I am now in his family. I, Jesus says, you've been born again. What does he say about me? Oh, you've got new suitcases. 
You are now in the family of God. Not just your biological family. And you are now citizens of God's kingdom. God's nation. You're not just Americans or whatever you are. You're citizens of God's kingdom. And so constantly the process of going from immaturity to maturity is saying, Jesus, you have permission to take any of this old stuff out of my suitcase and throw it away and take new stuff that represents God's family and God's kingdom and put it into my suitcase. Are you with me? That's the process of spiritual growth. That's the process of going from being a spiritual infant to a spiritually mature person. It's going to get down into the level of your motives. It's going to get down into the level of your emotional reactions. It's going to get down into those places where you say, well, that's just the way I am. I'm just a, a gossip and I just have always been a gossip. Or I'm, I'm jealous and I'm always je-, you know. Jesus says, quit excusing this stuff. That's who you were. But you're a new creation in Christ and I want to work on those things. But if we keep denying that they're even there or we keep thinking that they can't be changed because it's just sort of who we are, we're not coming in faith and hope that Jesus can change it and grow Jesus' love. You see, too much of our church experience many times is we come to church and we get told, well, you need to pray more. I do. I do. I need to pray more. I'm going to pray more. You need to give more. Well, maybe, maybe, you know, yeah, I'll think about that. Maybe I need to give more. You need to witness more. Oh, yeah, yeah. I know everybody should do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, it's up here at the fruit level. Go out and hang different fruit on your tree. Go out and look different. That doesn't work too well. You've got to go all the way down into the root system. It's got to change at the root level, and then it'll change at the fruit level. And the roots are down there in the motives and the values and the priorities that are buried in our suitcases. Look with me, if you would. At uh, John chapter 14. I just want to focus on just a couple of verses here. In John 14. I know you've got a passage, John 17, on your handout. We're going to go there next. So we're just going to pause here for a second. In John 14. Now, if you don't know the background here, John 13 to 17 is Jesus in his last teaching to the disciples before he goes to the cross. It's the last time he teaches them before he goes to the cross. What does he say in John 14, verse 20? When I am raised to life again, you will know. What are we going to know? I am in my Father, and you are in me. You have a new identity. You have a new identity. And I am in you. 
We also have the presence of God himself with us. The Holy Spirit lives in us. It's an intimate relationship. New identity and a new intimacy. And that gives me hope. You've got some blanks on there about faith and hope and love. What we're talking about here is faith growing from anticipation. I'm anticipating God to do something, not anxiety and thinking that God can't change something. I move from anticipation and I get rid of anxiety. With hope, I go from one, I'll go from escaping to endurance. I'm going to be filled. Hope is the idea of enduring, the bulldog. I'm not letting go. I'm enduring and I'm not escaping. That's that family in Nepal that Andy was talking about. They were enduring in their faith, in their hope, even though they were losing their land and facing all kinds of opposition. They had a sense of endurance, not escaping. And love is generosity, not grasping. Love is generosity, not grasping. It's giving, not lusting and taking. Faith, hope, and love. And they come, Jesus says, they come out of this new identity that you are in Christ. You're in a new family. God has signed all the papers and says, you're now my child forever. I have a new identity. Jesus said, you can pray and use my name. And the Father's going to go, yes, I'll listen to you. We have a new identity. But we also have this potential of a new intimacy with God. A new intimacy with Him. We can really begin to let Him repack our suitcases. I can, I can trust Him. And when I'm praying, or when I get home, and I'm getting still at the end of the day, sometimes the Holy Spirit will say, Are you ready to listen now? Do you remember how you spoke to that person earlier today? Well, Lord, did you see that? Yeah, I saw it. Okay. That was not very much Jesus' love. You're right. What's behind that, Lord? What was behind me being so short and brusque with that person and sort of writing them off? What was behind my, my just seeing them and reacting in a spirit of judgment just by what they physically look like? How can I approach people who look very different from me and see them as people God loves and that they have a story and part of my loving them is to listen and hear their story? You realize that if you really want to show love to somebody, one of the most powerful things we can do is listen. Listen is very close to loving. Why? Because when I say, Evelyn, tell me about yourself. Where'd you grow up? Tell me, about, tell me about your family. Tell me about what you're doing now. When I take time, and Evelyn and I have never had that time, when we take that time to listen, she feels valued. She feels trusted. She feels important. I learn a great story about what God's been doing in someone else's life. We connect as persons, and that's very close to loving that person. 
when we don't listen, when we never make margins in our life to listen. You know, I've pastored um, in a couple of different churches, one in Asheville, North Carolina, one in Boone, North Carolina. <clears throat> I know, really tough places. Beautiful places, resort places, right? But one of the things I've seen in my time of pastoring is that when I would leave a church after being there for several years, you know, eight years, ten years, kind of thing, when you'd leave that church and move on to the next assignment God has for you, I was sort of amazed how few out of a thousand people in Asheville and 500 people in Boone, out of leaving those groups of people, how few that we stayed in touch after I left. And what I realized was, all those years I was their pastor, we were sort of connected, but we were just connected on a very surface attachment. All we had in common was church. But there were maybe, what do you think, Pandora? Maybe less out of Boone, there was maybe 30 people. <coughs> 30 people out of 500 that we're still in touch with. And uh, sort of track their lives and keep up with each other. Why? Well, because we had a depth in our relationship that went beyond just church. Our kids played together, or we went on a vacation together, or we went on a mission trip together, or something. But something had taken our relationships from just church services to living life together. And that's, that's the reality of what, what this loving relationship looks like. When you have at least, I say to, to people, you need to have at least three people in your life that are not family that you could call at 3 a.m. with any problem in your life and they would listen and respond and do anything they could to help you. But many of our relationships are just right up here on a very surface, shallow level because we don't have that time to listen and connect in a deeper, deeper way. But that's what intimacy with God looks like too. You see, some of us, our relationship with God has always just been clocking in for a couple of hours on Sunday or maybe reading upper room devotion for five or ten minutes while we're drinking our coffee in the morning. And our relationship with God can be up there on that just sort of a shallow level. And there's not an intimacy. There's not a listening to God through His Scriptures and by His Holy Spirit. There's not a journaling of what He tells me as we connect with each other. There's not a praying of saying, Lord, I'm looking to you today for special strength and help when I go to talk to this person or be with this person. So just as intimacy grows on a human level by listening and spending time together, that's also true, Jesus' picture of it right here. I am in you. Well, let's look at one last passage together just to unpack this a little more. John 17. Now, that's the one that's on your, uh, your handout, right? You've got it on the second page? Okay. So this is for your toolbox. This is for your toolbox. This was one thing they taught me in seminary that I have shared everywhere I've gone, pastoring and overseas. Do you look on that page there? You see it? You see how the scripture is sort of laid out on the page? 
That's called a mechanical layout. You know what it is? In third or fourth grade, did you learn how to do diagramming of sentences? Anybody here go to school in those days where you drew all these lines and the line and the angle and you know branches and you learned how to diagram a sentence and pick out the subject and the verb and the direct object and the preposition? I've forgotten all this. Wasn't there, let's see, participle? A participle. I still don't know what participles are. But yeah, we've got them. They're in the English language. Okay. You learned how to diagram, correctly? Okay. Well, this is a cheater's, this is like a cheater's way to diagram. Because what you're doing is you're, you're writing down phrases and you're looking for key words and you're saying, is this telling me what this is or how this is part of this? So let's go through this passage together. This is the way I study my Bible. I take a piece of blank paper and I'll pick, say, a, a paragraph. And the first thing I'll do is I'll take about half of the page and uh, leave some white space on the right-hand side. But on the left-hand side, I'll do a mechanical layout of the verses. And then as I read it over several times over the next couple of days... I can write notes of what God's showing me and teaching me over here. With a, and I like to use a different color pen. I carry one of these uh, four-color pens, you know, blue, green, red, and black. And uh, so I can use different colors uh, for it. Okay? So let's go through it together. Jesus says, I'm praying. Who's he praying for? I drop down, and this, he, the next part of the verse tells me who he's praying for. Not only for these disciples, but... Okay, so I bring the but down underneath there because now he's going to tell me even more. It's not just these disciples in the room with me, but it's also all those who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray... Ah, what's he going to pray? I pray that they will all be one just as... Ah, now he's going to tell me more details of what the oneness looks like. Just as, Father, you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. So that, that's a very critical phrase, so that, because this is telling me purpose, I'm praying this why, Jesus. Why are you praying this for us? Why are you praying that we'll be one just like you and the Father are one. Is that hard to believe? God wants you to have other believers in your life that you are one with, just like Jesus and the Father are one in the Trinity? That's what Jesus is praying for you. It must be pretty important if He's praying that. Wouldn't you say that whatever's on Jesus' prayer list is pretty important stuff? Just as... You know, maybe the Gideons could do a mechanical layout Bible where the whole Bible is done in mechanical layout. Wouldn't that be cool? Just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you, and may they be in us so that what? What's the, after the so that? You following with me? What's he say? So that the world, what? The world will believe. Believe what? What's he wanting the world to believe? You sent me. You see how this helps you understand the Bible? By just dropping these phrases down and putting them under what they modify? It's just a cool little tool, but it can be so helpful to help the passage really 
speak clearly. <clears throat> so he says, I'm talking about a new family, guys. I'm talking about a new family. And my purpose is that the world will believe that this spiritually new family that's filled with people who are mature and give Jesus love to every person they meet, including their enemies. When you get a community of Christ followers who love with Jesus' love, the world's going to go, Woo! Who are these people? They're different. And that's what Jesus is praying. So we have this mission. And this mission is that the world will believe. But notice, the world doesn't believe by us going out and preaching. The world believes because we go out and we're giving out Jesus' love. Patience, kindness, all those 15 elements of Jesus' love. Let's continue on in the passage. I have given them the glory that you gave me. So they... Ah, again, why did he give us this glory? What's that glory all about? What, is that, what does that mean? We'll, we'll see if he unpacks it more. So they may be one as we are one. I in them and you are in me. Glory is the idea of shining a light. So he's saying, I'm giving them a gift, Father. I'm giving them glory. And what that does is it turns us into a flashlight so that we can turn and shine the light on Jesus. Because my sister had it right a while ago. How do we get Jesus' love? we got to receive it from God. And when, we, when He grows this in us and is repacking our suitcases, and as a community, we get better and better at giving out Jesus' love, then we become flashlights that are all taking our flashlights and turning them on Jesus. Jesus is the source of this new love. Jesus has forgiven us. We were enemies of God, and Jesus has forgiven us and welcomed us into the family so what else could we do but love our enemies and invite them to join us in the family? He's given us glory so that we can shine the light on Him by our oneness. And then He closes the prayer. It gets close to this section of it. May they experience such perfect unity. Again, why? That what? The world, the world will know. You see it? Know what? What does he want the world to know? That you sent me. That Jesus was sent from the Father. And that you love them as much as you love me. What? God loves us. As much as he loves Jesus. Wait a minute. Read that again. Jesus says, I want the world to know that you sent me. And that you love them. As much as you love me. My 
My Jesus love comes from that reality. Father, the elder brother in our family is Jesus, your one and only son. All the rest of us are adopted into the family. All the rest of us had a spiritual rebirth to come into the family. But Jesus, he's the elder brother, the firstborn from the dead in our family. And you showed us your love as the father because you let your firstborn son die for us and pay the price for our sins. And as much as you love Jesus, you love me. So here's their final thing for your toolbox. I've already had you carrying your suitcases around today. Some of you got into that. Some of you are thinking, I wish we could get over this sermon and uh, move on. I know, I know. I'm, I'm sort of that way. Okay. But I'm going to make you use your hands again. This time you've got to stand up. Okay? Stand up. It's nice to have all this power as the preacher, isn't it? Stand up! Okay, now we're going to do three hand motions, and we're going to make them part of prayer. I'm going to demonstrate it, and then I will let you follow me. Get my pages laid out here. The first position is, I want you to take both of your hands and hold them up like this. Now, And all the TV movies and everything else, what does that mean? I surrender. That's exactly what it means in the prayer. I'm surrendering to God. I'm telling Jesus, I'm laying my suitcases down. They're unzipped and open. I surrender everything in my suitcases to you, Lord. Whatever's in my family suitcase, whatever's in my cultural suitcase, all my motives, my values, my priorities, my stuff, it's all there. I surrender it to you for you to use it and work in it however you want to and replace some of it. You're welcome to. Okay? Second second motion. Take your hands and hold them out like this. This is the position of love, of generosity, because God's going to put some stuff in your hands. He may give you tomorrow to live. If he gives you tomorrow to live, that's a gift. Right? Some of us have been in those moments where we weren't sure we were going to get tomorrow, right? So when we have tomorrow, it's a gift from God. If we've got some money, it's a gift from God. If we've got some time, it's a gift from God. If we have friends or contacts or people that we know, that's a gift from God. If we have people who need something... They're a gift from God. If we have some enemies, they're a gift from God so that we can practice on loving enemies. If you didn't have any enemies, how do you ever get good at it? You've got to have some enemies to practice on. Come on. And so you say, Lord, I welcome whatever you want to give me, and all that I receive, I give out. 
Freely I have received, freely I give. So this is the position of surrender, the position of generosity and giving of all that God entrusts to me. And then there's a third one. And the third one is, I take my hand, and like I'm going to shake hands, I take my hand and I hold it out like this. And what we're doing is we're shaking hands with God like we're forming a covenant. We're making a promise. Okay? If Stephan and I were going to do some kind of a financial arrangement, then in our culture we would shake hands. And in some of the Arab culture, you shake hands and you take a big ribbon and you tie it around you together. Have you ever seen that or heard that done? But it's the idea of it's, it's sealing it. It's, I'm putting my word to this. This is a serious commitment. And so we're saying to God, God, I'm signing up for your mission. And whatever you have for me, whatever you want me to do, whatever assignment you have for me, the answer is already yes. You don't even have to give me all the details. You just show me the next step to take in my assignment, and whatever it is, it's yes. I'm on the mission with you. So I surrender. I live a life of generosity to receive and to give out of all I receive. And I've signed up for the mission. Okay? Now, I'd like for you to agree to do something. I can't make you do it, but I'm going to be back to preach again in December. Early part of December. I think it's the first Sunday in December, I think. Does that sound right? Andy says, yeah, that's right. First Sunday in December. We'll actually be starting Advent. Okay, so between now and the first Sunday in December, can we agree, I'm, I'm agreeing with you, that every morning, or if you can't do it in the morning, do it at lunchtime. If you can't do it at lunchtime, do it in the evening, so there's no cop-out. Sometime, that gives you enough time. I want you to get in a place alone for a moment, and I want you to pray a prayer of surrender, a prayer of generosity, and a prayer of the mission. I want us to do that every day and see what God does in our lives to help us grow out of any spiritual immaturity and to grow to maturity in love and faith and hope. Let's come to God. Lord, I want to grow in faith, hope, and love. And the way I do it is I surrender. I live with open hands of generosity. And I sign up. I covenant with you. That's all. What are you ever assignment you want to give me? All right. So let's practice. Stefan's coming up. We're going to have communion in a moment. While Stefan's coming up and we're getting in position, then I want you to practice. Close your eyes if you would. Okay. And I want you just to take a moment. I want you to use the motions if you would, please. Just to, you know because I'm the preacher today. And uh, I want you to go through those three motions and take just a moment to do that, and then we'll take communion together. And you can, So when you finish your prayer, you can be seated, right? Okay, so when you finish your prayer, just sit back down, okay? All right. Silent prayer, just between you and Jesus.